Welcome to episode one of season four of the Monday Morning Pastor podcast. This podcast is brought to you by a partnership between Missio Alliance and Kairos Partnerships. Good morning, JR. Good morning, Doug. We've been looking forward to this day for a long time. It's a big day. Not just, not just because it's the beginning <laughs> of a new season. That's great. But because of our guest, we mentioned last week that we were super excited. We asked our listeners to just trust us about the special guests that we would have. And we are really excited today to have a conversation with Bishop N.T. Wright. We are incredibly excited about this. A few weeks ago, um, we learned that N.T. Wright had just uh, written a book called God in the Pandemic. And it's it's going to be out very shortly here. And um, their people reached out to us and said, hey, would you be interested in having uh, N.T. Wright on your podcast? And we prayed about it and said, no, no thanks. <laughs> no, we said, of course, and had a chance to, to read the book, uh, Got in the Pandemic, ahead of time. And uh, we're really excited about this conversation. So um, I don't know. I don't know if you thought it was a joke or we we're like, is this April 1st? But we just loved hearing hearing from, uh, from N.T. Wright's people of just wanting to see if he would be on the podcast. So I was excited. I know you were too, Doug. Yeah, that's one thing I did learn in seminary. Like if N.T. Wright's people contact you, you just say yes, I believe <laughs> is something I learned. So <laughs> yeah, I think it's just, I, I mean, I know for for both you and I, and and um, in fact, I just was having a conversation with, uh, with someone a few weeks ago and I said, you know, uh, like what drew you to, you know, like academic and pastoral ministry. And it was funny. He said it was when I read an N.T. Wright book, all of a sudden I realized that pastors could be academic too. Wow. And it wow. was like That's one of those moments where I was like, dang, he just hit it on the head. Um, mm. But there's so many things that I, you know, that we appreciate about Tom. I feel like we should like brag on the things that we appreciate about Tom. Yeah. Yeah. Well, tell us what, what are, what are some uh, things that you love or are there are books that stick out or how has he just sort of helped or shaped you? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think first of all, he, he's a masterful storyteller, the way he's able to talk, uh, deeply theological and yet then tell these amazing stories that just continue to draw you in, uh, just continue to, I mean, it, it's just such, it's such a gift. Um, it's such a beautiful gift. Uh, but the book that I first, my first book that I read of N.T. Wright's was Following Jesus, Biblical Reflections on Discipleship. Yes, yes. And I remember reading that book and saying, I must have been reading the wrong Bible all of these years. <laughs> and it was really, I mean, I think it was just amazing because I had a chance to see the scripture from a brand new light. Um, so I, I think too, um, I got to meet him, we we got to meet him, you know, a few years ago at Missio Alliance. And um, he, I was chatting with him about something and he introduced me to CB Cared, um, which I guess was uh, was a, was one of his mentors. And um, he introduced me to a book called Language and Imagery in the Bible. And it just was another one of those things that uh, just grateful for just the brief moments that I had to interact with him too. Mm. Um, yeah. How about you? Yeah. Well, one of the things that I love about um, about him is even the way he uses his name differently. So, you know, as many British authors, uh, scholars go by uh, two letters, you know, C.S. Lewis and N.T. Wright, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, that's a very British thing to do when you're a scholar and you're writing. But he also uh, goes by Tom. Um, and as he goes by Tom, it's oftentimes he'll put of those so he'll write scholarly books signed N.T. Wright, right? For those who want to go deep 
academic stuff. But then he'll also sign books for just everyday readers that have mm. no theological background as Tom Wright. Mm. And I just appreciate it. I, there are very few people that can write so uh, so clearly and deeply at the same time. So he can go really scholarly with all these words you don't know what he's talking about. And then he can also bring the cookies to the bottom shelf. So Resurrection of the Son of God is a 740-page mm-hmm. academic book that is a doorstopper. And it's really good, but you got to wade through the deep end of the pool to get through that. But then he writes books like After You Believe for someone who just is a brand new, fresh Christian. And it's incredibly uh, accessible, non-academic, very clear, very thoughtful, very helpful. His Paul for Everyone series is fantastic. Mm. It's like a commentary for people who've never been to seminary. So I just love the fact he can balance that. And I'm so glad you mentioned this. I did not know you were going to say this. My favorite N.T. Wright book is Following Jesus, Biblical Mm. Reflections on Discipleship. And that's the one that I have right here uh, in front of me that I pulled off the shelf. That's the one that has shaped me the most. So mm-hmm. I'm really grateful for him. And so a handful of years ago, I had a chance to do some consulting work with uh, NT Wright Online, which were, were these courses, these courses that you can take where uh, NT Wright teaches you and you take them online. And it's not for credit, just for your own edification. And so seeing that kind of launch, I worked with the the, the U.S. director of that uh, for a few years. And that was just such a joy to be able to interact and help shape those courses that were offered on Udemy. Um, and uh, and then, you know, a couple of years ago at, you know, Missio Alliance had a chance to interview him, <clears throat> excuse me, on the stage. And we also heard him play some Bob Dylan tunes, which mm-hmm. is just unbelievable. I had no idea he knew how to play the guitar. I had no idea he he loved and knew Bob Dylan. And so we put a guitar up there and he played some Bob Dylan songs and brought the house down. So pretty cool uh, to have somebody do that. But I was describing to my wife, she said, oh, so this is a pretty big deal, this interview. I said, yeah, this, this is like the C.S. Lewis of our generation. Mm-hmm. It would be like we're radio announcers and we get the opportunity to, to have an, a radio interview with C.S. Lewis. And so I really believe there's only a few people in the Christian world that we will be reading their books 50 years from now. Mm-hmm. And I believe that all of Tom's books will be read 50 years from now. So um, not only that, but I also appreciate his incredible deep humility Mm -hmm. that even though he's got massive following and influence, um, he's just an incredibly grounded and humble human being. And none of this has ever gone to his head. And I just love that about him. So um, I know I'm looking forward to this conversation. I know you are too, Doug. Oh, yeah. N.T. Wright is an English New Testament scholar and Pauline theologian, and he's widely considered one of the world's leading Bible scholars. For 20 years, he taught New Testament studies at Cambridge, McGill, and Oxford universities. He was the Bishop of Durham in the Church of England from 2003 to 2010, and now serves as research professor of New Testament and early Christianity at St. Mary's College at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. He also serves as Senior Research Fellow at Wycliffe Hall at Oxford University. He's the author of over 80 books, and he writes about theology and Christian life and the relationship between them. He wrote the impressive Christian Origins and the Question of God series, including the New Testament and the people of God, Jesus and the victory of God, the resurrection and the Son of God, and most recently, Paul 
and the faithfulness of God. He's been featured on ABC News, Dateline, The Colbert Report, and Fresh Air, among many other programs. We have no doubt that you will find this conversation riveting, thoughtful, helpful, and hopeful. Enjoy this conversation with Dr. N.T. Wright. Well, Dr. Wright, we speak for many when we say that we're, we've been deeply impacted by your writings and your teachings throughout the years, and so it's a pleasure to have you here on this podcast. Thank you. Good to be with you. Yeah, so our world obviously has gone through quite a bit in light of the, the virus over the past few months, and so we want to start simply by just asking, uh, how are you and your family doing? You're well and healthy, I we oh, would well, assume. We're, we're reasonably well. Uh, I mean, it's been a long time now, obviously, it's been eight weeks or so, and my wife and I are sitting here in central Oxford. We, we are fortunate because we have a small garden of our own at the back of the house, which is quite nice, and it's been very sunny. And there's a college right across the street, which has very kindly allowed us to use their garden, which is huge and well stocked. And so day by day, we've been just walking around there and saying, oh, look, this um, particular shrub is coming along or whatever, and getting to know the birds that are there. And that's been really healthy for us. And I know that there are many, many people in many parts of the world who have no such luxury. What's really frustrating is that our youngest son and his family live just seven miles up the road. And we are absolutely not allowed to go and see them. Mm-hmm. And at least the only times we have seen them, we've driven to their house, we've parked up opposite, and then we've opened the windows of the car and talked to them when they're standing at their front door. Now, that's just a crazy way to be. It's not fun. And especially with two little um, grandchildren, uh, eight and four, who just want to be with you and they're very physical, they want to cuddle up, etc. And you just can't do it. Um, and my kids are very strict with us and say, no, mom and dad, you mustn't do that because we still want you to be alive in 10 years' time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't want to be responsible for accidentally infecting you. So that's really frustrating. And there are other obvious knock-on things. But I stress, we are among the lucky ones. I work from home anyway. This My study where you see me is my normal working habitat. I've got most of the books that I need around me and another bunch up in college, which I can sneak into and get. So um, I'm a lot better off than, 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 than some. And mm-hmm. because I work for uh, two different university organizations in Oxford and in St. Andrews, at the moment, my um, salary stream is, is okay. And uh, uh, that's all right. So I'm not like so many looking mm-hmm. at, the, at the at a brick wall at the end of the line. Mm. Well, that's great to hear. And during this pandemic, when it comes to both the church throughout the UK and the global church, what are you seeing? What are you hearing as you reflect back over the oh, last few months? I'm I'm hearing all sorts of things. Um, I mean, I don't have my ear to all those many bits of ground. And actually, for the first half of the lockdown, I was I had my nose down on the desk finishing a, a commentary I was writing, a commentary on the letter to the Galatians, um, which. I finished a couple of weeks after Easter. That was a great relief to get it off the desk. So I wasn't really listening to anything other than Galatians throughout throughout that time. Um, and since then, I've just picked up various vibes, particularly from friends in America who say it's all crazy. Some people are saying this, some people are saying that. Um, I haven't got too much out of Britain except the anger that people feel at being locked out of their churches, and then the anger that some other people feel at the first lot for being angry because actually it's been good for us and da 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 da. So those debates are rumbling on, and they're fairly sterile debates, to be mm-hmm. honest. Um, and I've tried to address them a little bit in the book, as you've seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So as a bishop, what would you be telling your pastors right now? 
Well, uh, if, I'm not still practicing as a bishop. Obviously, I, I stopped being Bishop of Durham 10 years ago. Um, and uh, uh, so, but naturally, I think about that sort of question. If I were, then I would be putting out a message saying, this is a time where it's like a sort of exile. It's not the main exile, but it's like a sort of exile. And fortunately, we have psalms and things which are for us to use at that time. And it will be a time for creative um, liturgy for creative online prayer meetings where people can use the Psalms of Lament, where people could go through the New Testament and look at the Lament passages in the New Testament and try to uh, inhabit them in a fresh way and, and try to get used to the fact that the New Testament, like the book of Job, lives with questions as well as with answers. You know, the um, Revelation 6, the souls under the altar saying, how long do we have to put up with this, O Lord? Well, there's a lot of people right now who are not yet souls under the altar, saying, how long do we have to put up with this? And it's good to be able to realize that God's people throughout the ages and in various different circumstances have asked these questions. And the main thing is it doesn't mean we have to panic. It doesn't mean this must be the end of the world. It doesn't mean um, uh, this is because we've committed some terrible sin and need to repent. Yeah, we, as I say in the book, we may have done, but that's not the point. Mm. Um, the, the point is to learn to lament and then to try to understand out of that the fact that God laments too, that God, there are things which grieve God to God's heart, and, and that this is something we perhaps need to recover in our rather cheerful and often superficial modern Christian practice. Mm. So there's lots of hope, there's lots of concern. How are you juggling the realities of just the hope of Jesus Christ, his church is never closed, uh, while also just that the somber uh, reality around the world. Well, How do we hold it, those intention now? It, 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 I don't think it's anything new. It merely accentuates and underlines the way things actually are all the time. You know that there are there are wonderful people who are dying in road accidents or have been um, over the years. There are tremendous people who one thanks God for, who are then struck down with strange illnesses and die. That has always been the case. In the book of Acts, you get Acts 12, when Herod kills James, the brother of John, with the sword right at the top, and then Peter gets out of jail free and is free to go on with his missionary work. And you think, what's that all about? And I've often said to people, if I was James's mother, I wouldn't like Acts 12 very much. You know, hang on, how, how come her boy got out of jail and mine got killed? You know, that, that is normal Christian living. I think we in the West have been accustomed to taking the modern Western attitude to other things, namely, we're the civilized ones, we have good medicine, we have good education, uh, we know how the world works, and imagining we can apply that to our Christianity, that we are now the ones who are sailing through life uh, doing all right because we believe in Jesus, we've worked it all out. And the answer is absolutely not. I've noticed actually recently, um, in America particularly, there have been some good books on lamenting, on learning to, or relearning to lament. And it's as though our culture's got to a moment where uh, we realize we need to be able to do that better than we've done it. What the pandemic does is simply say, yes, that's right. That's the norm. And this simply highlights it, puts a bright spotlight on it. And so maybe there are lessons we need to learn, but they're, but they're lessons which are general Christian life lessons, not specific for these eight weeks sort of thing. Mm. Yeah. So or however long it's going to be. Yeah. What are some of the opportunities for the church post pandemic um, that might not have been present pre pandemic? It's a good question. And I'm not sure we 
really know the answer because I think I have seen in the newspapers and heard on radio and seen on television a lot of people who are using this moment as a way of saying what they wanted to say anyway, whether it's, I mean, some people are saying, oh, it's obvious because look how clear the skies are, look how fresh the air is. Um, we've been praying that we might be able to have um, uh, a more responsible attitude to the environment. Well, this has forced it upon us and now we need to learn that lesson. And I want to say, well, actually, you were saying that for years before this happened. So you're just piggybacking off this present crisis to do that. And there's a danger of the church, particularly uh, those who believe passionately in evangelism, as I do, um, wanting to say the same thing. Aha, now everyone is asking questions about life and death. This is the time to hit them with the gospel. And the answer is, well, it is and it isn't. Every time is a time to preach the gospel. Paul says, woe unto me if I don't preach the gospel in good times and in bad. Um, and actually, some people may be a bit resentful if they think the church is saying, ah, now we've cornered you. We've we've got you where we want you, and you will listen to this message. Of course, there may be some who are asking big existential questions for the first time in their lives. Fine, okay, let's be there for them. But I don't think we can simply say, Ah, now we know exactly what to do. I think there's a combination of things where churches need to be working together, particularly to lobby governments about health services, about um, uh, global issues, because there, there are big global questions which either the United Nations or the World Health Organization or whatever need to address. Those organizations have shown that they're not quite fit for purpose. Well, let's see what we can do to nudge people who count to say, let's make them fit for purpose. And, and the, the key thing is that from the beginning, the church has always been in the business of looking after the poor and, and of uh, trying to bring health to people, trying to care for those who have no one to care for them. From the very beginning, that's in the DNA of the church. We in the modern West have forgotten that because we've handed that over to other people, to the secular arm, if you like. Um, but actually, the churches have got a track record on this, and we need to go back and retrieve that. Mm. Yeah, so uh, this this question probably feels a little bit more personal, but you mentioned gardening. What what other things do you do for rest and play and pleasure just to stay healthy and sharp? Uh, I'm not a great gardener. Um, we, we just moved to this house in Oxford. It's got a little garden at the back. It was a total wilderness. So we got some guys in and they laid a lawn and we they sneaked up to a garden center and bought from some roses and some other little plants and so on. And we've just, we, my wife and I have moved so often that we've never become good gardeners because each time we've just thought we were getting it sorted, we've had to move house again. So so uh, it's fun, but that's it. I, I, what I've been doing the last few months is cycling around Oxford. I haven't been on a bike um, since oh the early 1990s because I've been in other jobs where that wasn't uh, necessary or a good idea. But in Oxford, that's the way to get around. So almost every day I'm doing not a long ride and not a fast ride, but just keeping my aged limbs moving. And Oxford is beautiful when there's nobody around. I mean, it's it's bizarre. No students, uh. no tourists, the streets are empty. <laughs> um, just a few people sneaking into sh supermarket shops here and there, and that's about it. Um, and there's some lovely countryside, very easily accessible, right on the on the edge of the town. So I've been enjoying that, and the weather has been marvelous. And so all the flowering shrubs and so on coming out, it's been really good. Um, left to myself, what I like to do if I can is to play golf. But the golf courses have been shut, um, mm. and anyway, um, I don't actually have my clubs here. They're still in Scotland. I left. We left a lot of kit in Scotland when we moved down last October. 
Oh, man. Um, well, I know a few years ago um, when you were at Missio Alliance in the Washington, D.C. area, yeah. you uh, you picked up your guitar and you played some oh, yeah. Bob Dylan songs yes, and uh, you you brought the house down. <laughs> and uh, so we're, we're curious, when was the last time you you just picked up your guitar and and uh, <sighs> are there any particular songs, maybe even Dylan songs that it, uh, have helped in light of the pandemic? It's it's frustrating because um, I, I used to play several instruments, uh, uh, piano and guitar particularly. And and as you get older, because I've been terribly busy doing other things, I haven't practiced like I should. And then I sit down at the piano and try and play a piece that I vaguely know. And my fingers just won't quite do it because I'm not practicing regularly. Likewise with the guitar. And I, I, I usually remember the words, but I have a sense of frustration because it's not coming out the way I would like it to. Plus, my singing voice, I have to say, has deteriorated a lot, even even mm. since that Missio Alliance conference, which is what three years ago, four yeah, years. I ago? think two, three years yeah. ago. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Um, so, so that that's that's a bit frustrating. So I do sometimes pull it out and, and strum and, and do a few things, but. Now that that sadly hasn't been a feature. Maybe maybe it should be. Maybe that would be therapeutic for me. Uh, I'm not sure it'd be therapeutic for anyone else. Than you, so <laughs> well, let's talk about your book, God yeah. in the Pandemic. Uh, you, we, first of all, we're just absolutely amazed how you can write a book so quickly <laughs> uh, and with such clarity in our times. And so, God <laughs> in the Pandemic is coming out very shortly. We're amazed by this, but. I know many, and you touched on this earlier, but many are asking, and just seemingly everyone wants to know, where is God in the pandemic? Uh, some are even saying, this is God's judgment on the world. We need to pay attention. How would you respond to people who are saying, this is God's judgment? Yeah, I got some flack for that because, I mean, this is how, how the book got written, is that when the whole thing started up, the editor, the sub-editor at Time magazine, with whom I've worked before and other things, she sent me an email and said, don't suppose you've got 800 words you could say about this just to keep the pot boiling. And I, I thought, no, I don't. I'm far too busy. And of course, as soon as you start th saying that, something goes on in the brain. And by midday, I was thinking, do you know, I think I do have one or two things to say. So I wrote them and she then put or somebody put a different headline on, which was a bit irritating. The headline mm. said, um, Christianity doesn't have the answers and it's not supposed to, um, which was a kind of a cheeky twist on what I'd said. And it got some flack. And mm. then I got angry messages from people saying, N.T. Wright doesn't read his Bible. Um, it's obvious what's going on. Just read the book of Amos. This is because we've been wicked and whether it's abortion or gay marriage or, or not caring for the planet or something. Mm. And I want to say, hey, wait a minute. Hang on. Hang on. Um, let's just think a bit more wisely about this. Because yes, you have the book of Amos, but you also have Psalm 44. Um, and yes, you have Deuteronomy, but you also have the book of Job. And then in the New Testament, when it all comes together, it looks very different again. And uh, so then somebody asked me to do a podcast. This is about five or six weeks ago. And I just sketched some stuff out on a sheet of paper developing that. And we had a great conversation. Uh, and I thought on the back of that, maybe I ought just to, to, to write this down slightly more formally. And I was in touch with my publishers anyway, because I've been writing this book on Galatians. And I said, you know, I've been having some ideas about the pandemic thing. And they said, well, send us what you got and we'll see. And 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 then they got back and said, how quickly can you do it? <laughs> there it was. But I think that for me, the key thing is this. And this is quite, I think, quite an important philosophical point that in the Western world, talk about God in society in general, but also in the church, has tended to be first we do God the Father, and then we fit Jesus into that somehow. 
Uh, and different people have done that different ways, but that's how it comes out. So what is God saying? And then let's bring Jesus in because he'll save us from the mess or whatever it is. Um, in the New Testament, it's very clear that we don't really know who God is, but Jesus reveals him. John says that in chapter one. Paul says that in Colossians chapter one. Hebrews says that. Uh, th this, this is pretty basic New Testament theology. And it's as though all the different things that are going on in the Old Testament kind of funnel down into the Gospels. And, and you know, Many modern Christians aren't that good at thinking of the whole biblical story and seeing how it gets knitted together with Jesus and how it then comes out in a sense differently, in a sense not, the other side. And and so I thought, let's just do that take coming through. And it was that focus on Jesus, because Jesus sometimes says, yeah, don't sin again in case worse things happen to you. That's John 5. But other times, John 9, he says, it wasn't this man nor his parents. It was so that the works of God might be revealed. And then he heals the man. In other words, this is the work of God. And, and then I was particularly struck. I, I don't know if you know, the Japanese artist Mako Fujimura, I footnote him in the book. Yeah. Mako has this amazing new book coming out, Theology of Making, in which he goes into great detail on that amazing scene of Jesus weeping at the tomb of Lazarus. And I'm thinking, this is something we haven't factored in. The mm. Jesus of John's gospel is God incarnate. There's no question about that. And God incarnate weeps at the tomb of his friends. He doesn't say, oh, well, it's because you lot in Bethany were so sinful. Or you, Mary and Martha, you were too bothered about this and that. So God has allowed your brother to die so that you can learn some lessons. He, he weeps with them. Mm. Um, he teaches them stuff as well. But, but the tears are absolutely central. And that's that's one of the prime drivers for why I say, if this is about anything, it's about the call to lament. And the point about lament is that we don't know the answers. That was the point of that headline in Time magazine. We don't, it doesn't mean, okay, I'll say a, say a prayer of lament, and then I'll be able to come out and tell you the five answers, the things we're doing wrong or whatever. Or is this a sign of the rapture? And the answer is, uh, no, it isn't actually. Um, mm. and, and so on. The answer is you stay with lament. And I find for myself and, and friends that I know, we talk about this, I, I have been just called back to lament again and again, that there are deep sorrows and and I can't do anything about them. I just have to hold on to them. I have to pray the Psalms, and I have to uh, hope that I can get inside the Romans 8 thing of the spirit groaning within and just say, that, that is where we are. And maybe that's where we're called to stay for a season, like the Jews in exile, like the Jews, for heaven's sake, for 400 years after the Babylonian exile, still chafing over the fact that the great promises of Isaiah and Ezekiel and so on haven't been fulfilled yet. And at mm. the end of that time, guess what? Along comes John the Baptist and then Jesus. So maybe the staying with lament and the saying, how long, O Lord, how long, is a discipline that the church has to learn again. Mm. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. We actually had Mako Fujimori on just a few weeks ago oh, to right, talk about right. this on our podcast. So this oh, fits in very perfectly. Well, and he talked about the scene in John. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. that scene well, of weeping. He, he asked me to write a foreword for the book, which I did. And that meant that I had to read it quite carefully, which was a wonderful treat. And Mako is such an amazing human being. Uh, I'm very glad you had him on. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. And the idea of lament, I, and I don't, I know here in, in America, we struggle with patience 
And so yeah. this idea of lament, many people are talking about it. struggle with patience, but I think you you Americans have a special corner on that one. <laughs> yes, and so this this is where it's hard for us. But I yeah. I'm I'm really glad we're being forced into a season of lament because I'm not yeah. sure we would choose it. <laughs> yeah. no, here in the West, one doesn't. One doesn't. Um, uh, and you know, uh, as a pastor, I have known many many people who have gone through terrible terrible times who say afterwards, I would never have chosen this, hmm. but God has been with me and I have learned this and I have grown in this way and this has mm. come out of it. It mm. doesn't make it good. I mean, that's that's one of the things we find so difficult. We want to be able to look back and say, okay, we've got this all sewed up. We see why God was doing this. So it was all okay, wasn't it? And the answer is no, damn it, it's not. It's yeah. not okay. Jesus doesn't say Lazarus' death, Lazarus's death was a good thing. Yeah. He weeps and then he raises him. That's very different. We have to beware of glossing over the bad stuff mm. as though, and this goes to Romans 8, 28, of course, as though, oh, well, all things work together for good. That's basically stoicism. It's not mm. Christianity. Mm. Yeah, and in your book, you say something that I think really supports that when you said part of the answer to the question, where is God in the pandemic, must be out there on the front lines, suffering and dying, bringing healing and hope. Can you unpack that yeah. a little bit further? Sure. Uh, I, I mean, over the years, as a biblical theologian and as a pastor, I have come to believe more and more mm -hmm. quite vividly in, in the work of the Holy Spirit. And I don't mean that in the sense of um, dramatic, charismatic gifts, though the Spirit gives dramatic, charismatic gifts. And if he wants to do that, that's absolutely fine. No problem about that, whatever. But the Spirit energizes God's people to do God's work at the places where the world is in pain. And that's where the Romans 8 thing comes together. The world is groaning, and the church is not sitting on the sidelines. The church is also groaning. This is this is the Mother Teresa thing, if you like, the, mm. the, the sense that here is where the pain of the world is at its most intense. I will go and be there with them. And as I pray, I may or may not feel a rush of the spirit, but I just know that this is where I need to be. And this goes back to there's an ancient Jewish tradition, almost a legend about somebody looking for the Messiah and, and somebody saying, oh, you'll find him outside the city gate there. And there is, there is the Messiah out with the outcast sitting outside the gate. And you know, th th that's one of those wonderful rabbinic paradoxes, because of course, the Messiah ought to be sorting out the problems of the world. Well, maybe the way he sorts out the problems of the world in the present time is by coming and sharing them and being there with people. And I mean, for me, I, I think this is now more widely known, but a few weeks ago, I had an email exchange with Archbishop Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, because he wanted to read my little thing on the pandemic. And in, in fact, he wrote a nice blurb for it, which is very kind. Um, and he told me that what he's been doing while the pandemic's been going on, he lives in Lambeth Palace, which is right opposite the Houses of Parliament, the other side of the river, and just about 100 yards away is St. Thomas's Hospital, one of the great London mm. hospitals. So he has been going in on a regular basis as an extra volunteer chaplain and putting on the protective equipment and praying with people and just being with them and holding somebody's hands while they're dying, whatever. And it seems to me... That's just an amazing example. Um, he, he's not trying to solve anything. He's just saying, this is where the church should be. And I, as the representative visit, visibly and publicly of the church, 
that's where I need to be. Uh, that's an mm. amazing example. And and that, of course, works in, in a thousand different ways from people who are uh, realizing that there's an elderly neighbor down the street who can't get out to the store and it's difficult to get home deliveries sometimes, looking out for them, can we leave some milk on your doorstep, whatever. A thousand little ways, but then out of which grow larger things as well. And if you believe strongly in the Holy Spirit, then you have to say, this is the Holy Spirit leading people to do all kinds of things which are the Christ thing in these circumstances. And mm. this is deeply Trinitarian. This is part of the way that God the Father cares for his world and his people, even though there is still grieving and sorrow and death going on. when he talks about the wounded healer. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Uh, And that, that of course, comes straight out of um, Mm -hmm. the the theology of the cross. Yeah. 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 So you've written extensively about the life of Paul. So Mm -hmm. I'm curious, what what do you imagine Paul's response might have been to encourage followers of Jesus during a pandemic? Oh, I mean, uh, they were used to famines and and epidemics and so on. Uh, This is the thing. We have forgotten in our generation, just like my generation has forgotten what war is like, um, Mm. because I I was born in 1948. I have never physically seen war with my own eyes. My father was a prisoner of war. His father was decorated in the First World War and fought in the Boer War. That was the norm, generation by generation. We've been the lucky ones. Ditto with major epidemics. You know, you hear about these things happening somewhere else and, oh, dear, a few hundred people have died. But it's been nothing remotely like this. The ancient world, this stuff happened all the time. You know, as I say in the book, there were major epidemics towards the end of the second century AD, middle of the third century AD. And the church just got on and did what it did, which was to go and care for people. And, you know, Paul has this kind of gritty wisdom in 1 Corinthians 7, which I suspect is written during a famine. That's a good historically based theory about that, where he says, look, the present time is really tough. So let's just hang in there. Don't make any silly decisions about doing anything too fancy or or trying to change your status or whatever. Let's just get through this one. And, and he's not trying to make anything big theologically out of it. Likewise, in Acts 11, which I bring out in the book, um, that in Acts 11, they hear in Antioch, oh, there's going to be a famine. And they don't immediately say, oh, this must mean the Lord's coming back. Nor do they say, oh, goodness, this must be because we've sinned somehow. What can we do? What prayers can we pray? They say, somebody is going to be at particular need here. Who is it? What can we do to help? And who shall we send? And if somebody says, oh, that's very sort of untheological, I will say, no, it jolly well isn't. That is about paying attention to the Holy Spirit and seeing what the Spirit wants to do. Because it goes back to Genesis 1. What God wants to do in the world, God wants to do again and again through loyal, obedient, not always understanding, but loyal and obedient human beings. And he gives us his Spirit to enable us to do that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
Sorry, just taking some notes here. That was so helpful. <laughs> uh, so there's been so much discussion about the digital church and what is the church and can you really have church on a screen? And you share in your book how churches had to shift to online services during the shutdown and for good reason. Um, but that if we are not careful, we can go from e-church to p-church or a, a platonic vision of church. Yes, yes. Can, can you explain that a bit more? Yes, yes, indeed. Um, There is a real danger here because a lot of Western Christians over the last 200 years have become Platonists. That is to say, we have imagined that the present world of space, time and matter and physical objects and church buildings and and, and furniture and and even bread and wine in communion, etc., that that this is all just sort of uh, a concession to our bodily weakness. But actually, we want to be pure spirits uh, and, and we want to fly away and be in this pure celestial sphere uncluttered by bodily um, uh, life. And that is a heresy. That, that straightforward platonic heresy, God made this world and he made it good. And in the incarnation, Jesus scoops that up, celebrates it and redeems it. And the point of the resurrection is the, the, the fresh gift of a new physicality, not escaping that physicality. So when you get platonically minded Christians put in a room at home looking at something on the screen, they can fool themselves that actually this is the real thing because we're Mm. having a spiritual fellowship and we don't need to get together in a silly old drafty church building, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, And I understand how that can seem like a good thing. And I have to say that the reports from the front line from friends in parish ministry are that many, many more people are turning up electronically than were turning up physically on Sunday mornings. Now, hallelujah, that's a very good thing. But but the church is not about people sitting in solitary isolation who happen to be able, because we're clever technologically, to make uh, what looks like a connection. I mean, we all know, you know, when you make a phone call, um, uh, the, 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 it's phone, phones are better than nothing, but the substance of the words and even the tone of voice is only about, I don't know, 25% or something of the real communication when you're with somebody sharing mm-hmm. their their interest, their room, sharing a cup of tea with them, whatever. Communication is much more vivid than that. We mustn't get used to shrunken communication. And even though, I mean, I've been going to church on a Sunday morning Um, with the Oxford Diocese who have a a communion service. Somebody leads it, and they've got recordings of choirs and so on, and that's that's better than nothing. But I am under no illusion that I'm actually in church with this person. And it's a very sort of bloodless thing. Um, And sharing the peace online is, is like, just ridiculous. It's like like when when our grandchildren try to kiss us over over, um, FaceTime or whatever. Uh, Yeah, that's that's sweet, but it's actually not a kiss. Let's not fool uh, ourselves. uh, The funny thing to me is that actually 30 years ago, the Church of England Doctrine Commission was asked by one of the broadcasting companies, what would you say? if we recorded a communion service and invited people at home to put some bread and wine on the table at home and then consider that to be consecrated so that they were sharing in the same thing. Well, all sorts of theological issues come up. And we on the Doctrine Commission, this must have been late 1970s, so maybe 40 years ago now, we said, actually, no, this is not the same thing and we shouldn't fool ourselves. This time round, it's just happened. People have just done it. There hasn't been any debate, any discussion. It's just straight into this. 
And I think we've got some hard questions to look at. And I think when we can get back into church, there will be a huge sigh of relief to be able to go and hug people, to be able to share the peace with them. And yes, the Eucharist, the actual bread and the wine, and to, to have that as gift into our hands and our hearts. That, mm. that's, that's something that we sorely miss right now. Mm. Yeah, one of the things that we've said often is, aren't we glad that Jesus uh, didn't come down in an email or a voicemail or a Zoom call or, you know, that that he came in the flesh and we there's no matter how much technological advancement we get, we cannot replace incarnational ministry that occurs. Um, Yeah, I'm I'm curious. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm curious what you might say to those individuals, not pastors, we'll get to that in a second, but individuals that say, you know what, I really like online church. I mean, I get to stay in my pajamas. I don't have to get dressed. I don't have to get in the car, stare at the back of someone's head in front of me. I, I can, I, I'm liking this. What would you want to encourage them to think through <laughs> about uh, actually making the effort to be with people? Yeah, I, I, I can understand that. I mean, uh, morning by morning, because I'm part of the community at Wycliffe Hall, the Anglican seminary just up the road here we've been having um, online morning prayer and uh, several people put their cameras on you actually see them others of us just just uh, keep in the background um, but I'm really enjoying that particularly intercessions there's a sense of actually intercessions in morning prayer I think of the time when it really seems to me at least to come alive but it's not the same as being in chapel and being able to sing the hymns together and recite the psalms together. Um, So I I understand that it may feel um, like a a sort of an odd, weird thing. But believe me, it'll pull quite soon. And when people get back to the real thing. um, As a pastor, I know that a lot of what a church service means is what's passing between people when they realize that so-and-so in the next seat um, is actually seems to be having a hard time right now or remembering mm. that this, this person's child has been sick or whatever. And, and out of a context of worship comes a great deal of informal and sometimes formal pastoral ministry. That's, that's not happening at the moment. And there are other things, other dimensions as well, which seem to be missing. So, yeah, I understand, yeah, hang out at home, stay in your pajamas, why not? but mm, the time will come. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that people are feeling that. I mean, that's yeah. a very strong feeling of, of mm-hmm. people saying, I, I really am craving being back together yeah. with other people. I, I think that there are pastors who are a bit concerned, especially in the West here, with consumerism being so pitch high uh, of saying, well, hey, it's not meeting my needs. I don't want to go. How, what would you want to encourage pastors as they think about pastoring and challenging their people to live into the incarnational reality of this triune God rather than a digital yeah. presence? Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it, it's difficult. And of course, the American situation is so different from what we know in, in the UK um, that a lot of people dry, get in their car and drive many, many miles to go to church in America. I know I've been there, done that. Um, uh, Most people who go to church in the UK go within three or four miles of where they live. Some people will drive further, but but for most, it's it's a reasonably local thing. 
And I think one of the things that I really want to encourage all the time is people to meet in even smaller localities, in, in, in maybe ecumenical street groups. A few years ago in the northeast of England, we did this thing called the Big Read, where all the churches got together. And almost street by street around some of the towns, we had groups of eight or 10 who were reading Luke's gospel together during Lent. And we had Roman Catholics, we had Salvation Army, we had Syrian Orthodox, we had Baptists, um, you name it. And they, they hardly knew each other, but their churches had said, find out who else is doing this and get together with them. And there's something deeply incarnational about that and something deeply ecumenical about that. And if one of the things that were to emerge from this, this is me on my hobby horse using the pandemic shamelessly as an excuse for saying it, is that we have been far too isolated. You know, I, I'm, I'm enormously impressed with the energy that goes into church planting and church growing and all the rest of it. But, but in the New Testament, there's no such thing as Christians unrelated to other Christians in the same city. That's why Paul writes Romans to say to the different groups, make sure you worship together. You may have different opinions about this and this, but make sure that with one heart and voice, you glorify God, the Father of our Lord Jesus. And that, that, that stuff in Romans 14 and 15 may be a word for our time too, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. I feel like what has happened in the midst of a lot of this is it, it's really exposed that how isolated we actually are. And yeah, I think that yeah. has been such a great gift. Just uh, yesterday, I had a chance to meet with someone within our community in a socially distanced way, safe. Um, and at the end, she had tears in her eyes. She said, I just wish I could hug you right now. Yeah, 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 and to realize yeah, yeah. how important these embodied practices that we have yeah, yeah. truly are. Yeah. Sure. Yes. Yeah, so right. this this pandemic has been a great disruptor. And sure. one of the major disruption points has been in higher education and the academy. And so what do you believe the role of the academy, especially the Christian academy moving forward might be? Oh my. Oh my. That's a real toughie. And of course, I'm I'm living it at the moment. I'm looking out of my window across the street is New College in Oxford, one of the great historic colleges of Oxford University. The only people who are around there at the moment are one or two graduate students who haven't anywhere else to live um, from abroad. So they're just hanging out there and nipping out to the supermarket and getting some food. Very, very strange. And all classes are being held online. Exams are being done online, et cetera, et cetera. And as with church congregations, so with seminars. And you know, one of the things I love about teaching in a university is to sit around a table with 10 or a dozen students and to read through texts together and, and to, to argue about them and to probe and prod. You just can't begin to do online what you can do in real seminars or real lectures. I'm doing some lectures at the moment for Wycliffe Hall, but I record them sitting in my study here and then uh, they're online. They can download them and watch them in their own time. Um, but it's, it's, it's very hard to have a proper Q&A and all that stuff. So I think we need to get back to the real thing as soon as we can. Although we have all learned by now how to do lectures from home. It's not fun. It's not easy. I'd much, as an extrovert, I'd much rather have a bunch of actual real life people sitting in front of me um, engaging. Um, uh, that, that's what you miss is, is the engagement. And, 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 and it is about, again, it is about embodiment. It is about, you know, Genesis 2, it is not good for the man to be alone. It's not good for humans to be alone. We need community. We are formed and shaped by it. And we contribute to that as well. So I want to say, yes, we need to ask some hard questions, but let's find the creative ways back into fullness of rich community life uh, just as fast as we can. Mm. 
Mm. Well, last last question, uh, Dr. Wright. I, obviously, being in the scriptures is, is so important for us all the time, but in light of, of the pandemic, is there a particular book of scripture or a passage that you think would be important for followers of Jesus to uh, truly focus on in this season, to really well, 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 I've mentioned a couple. I mean, Psalm 44, which Paul quotes twice in uh, Romans 8, is really, really important because Psalm 44 is one of those places where the psalmist says, look here, all this stuff has happened, but we have not played false. We have not abandoned the covenant. Our heart has been true, and now you've still done it. And that is how many Christians feel right now. So it's a great psalm to be in, but it should lead us straight to Romans 8. And those verses, Romans 8, 18 to 30, but focused on the prayer passage, 8, 26, 27, and 28 itself, when read properly, uh, which I try to explain in the book, that is where we see this Trinitarian vision of, as I said before, the world is in pain, the church shares that pain and shouldn't seek artificially to distance itself, knowing that as we lament, so the spirit is groaning within us, and the one who searches the hearts that is God the Father, and this is a direct echo of Psalm 44, the one who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. We are thereby being formed into the likeness of Christ. That's what it's all about. And okay, if this pandemic teaches us anything, wouldn't it be good to be formed at a deep spiritual level as Trinitarian Christians once again? Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Wright, it's been a true joy to have you on the podcast. Thanks for Thank your you. time. But on a broader level, we want to say how deeply appreciative we are of the way in which you have loved and continue to love God with all of your mind, and that you also challenge countless others to do the same. Your writing and your teaching has been a gift to us. So thank you again for your time today. Thank you very much. It's very good to see you again, and uh, I'm sure we'll stay So, JR, it's not every day that we get a chance to sit down with the leading scholar of all things. <laughs> that was such a joy. We uh, wanted to be respectful of his time, but you and I certainly could have talked with him for another few hours. Yes. Yeah, I, I think in some ways, um, I, I don't want to sound like a fanboy right now, but it's kind of a bucket list bucket list yeah. thing. That was a that was a real joy. Uh, and he's always so humble. Mm-hmm. And I love that he can write way up here, but he can also just bring the cookies to the accessible shelf for all of us to enjoy. So, yeah, I mean, there were several things that really stuck out to me. I, you know, we started talking, obviously he's Anglican. Mm -hmm. And so at the beginning, when we, when we, he talked about sort of how do you do digital church? I thought that was really good of just really fleshing out ecclesiology. What does this look like? But a lot of churches have gone online. So how do we do that? But I love the metaphor that he used about when he sees his grandkids on FaceTime and they reach in to kiss him, you know, uh, on the screen on FaceTime. He's like, it's, it's just not the same. Mm. It's just not the same. Like it, it's, it's what we have for now, but it's just not the same. So I love that metaphor. That really, really stuck out to me. So yeah, um, yeah. What about you, Doug? What are some things rolling through your head after that conversation? I, um, well, I'm, I'm, I was really grateful for uh, him talking about the tears of Jesus and Jesus weeping. Um, yeah, I. Man, it's, I think sometimes I tend to forget and we tend to forget the humanity 
uh, of, of God and how, how God is so human in Christ and how he cries with us and he weeps with us and how, you know, there is no other pretense of, uh, I know what's going to happen, but I'm going to weep anyways, cause that's the right thing to do, but that he is present and his tears are available to us. So for me, I thought that was, that was so, it, it was timely for me because I really, um, number one, I've, I've been, I'm, I'm tasked to preach on that in a few weeks. And, um, I was just been really thinking through that passage a ton. So I was really grateful for that. And I think too, like even just the way in which he shared that, that the book kind of came out where someone called him, you know, he had a conversation, started thinking through it, and then he realized he had a lot to say about it. I just, I found that to be such a gift and, and again, grateful for, for all of the different ways in which, um, Dr. Wright has continued to like, um, train theologians from afar and train pastors from afar. Yeah. Yeah. The idea of weeping and groaning, you know, he talked a lot about lament and he does talk about that a lot in, in the book, God in the pandemic. And, you know, that's not something we're very good at as we talked in the conversation and lament is so important and it just continues to be, and will continue to be moving forward. And, um, you know, a third of the Psalms, 50 of the Psalms are Psalms of lament, these training wheels that teach us how to, how to weep and grieve with hope. And, uh, so yeah, and it is interesting. I love that he, he touched on Mako, uh, who was just talking about that very passage of Jesus at Lazarus's tomb, uh, just a few weeks ago here on this podcast. So, um, I think the other thing that was really important that stuck out to me was, uh, reminding us that pandemics are not anything new, that the church for centuries has been wrestling with this idea of pandemics and how do we respond in this? Um, I've heard Tim Keller and others talk about um, that Martin Luther wrote uh, an entire paper and it was so, he just made a reference to it and I, I looked it up. And uh, when Keller referenced it and I read it, it was just fascinating because a lot of the advice that Luther, when someone asked him, what should pastors do? What should people do? What should Christians do when a pandemic is ripping through Europe? And he wrote this multi-page essay response back. And it was fascinating. And to remind us that pandemics, you know, we talk about the 1918 Spanish flu, but there was one in the 50s that wiped out a million people that we mm. don't often talk about. <laughs> mm. um, and, you know, then just previous generations have dealt with pandemics. And so we've been in this long window of time of health, and not a lot of war, relatively speaking. And so in some ways, we maybe our generation and the last few generations have been, um, we've sort of become comfortable mm. and have forgotten that pandemics um, have been common in the history of the church. So that was really good perspective. I really appreciated that. And he also talked about um, how some churches would get together and do the big read. And I love that that idea, uh, the big read. Just here. get together and read scripture together. Nice and easy uh, to do that together. I, I just really found that to be, uh, to be, I mean, just... M- a lot of my imagination just started, well, what if we tried that? And what if, what, what would that look like? And do we do that ever online or is that all in person? And so, but just how, how interesting that would be. So yeah. And I also, a great conversation. I also really appreciated just the practices that he's doing to continue to cultivate health, riding his bicycle um, yes. around Oxford and being, you know, gardening. having access to the garden and gardening. Yeah. And, um, and it was really good to hear that he's not that good at gardening. Um, 
He's actually bad at something. He's bad at something. Wow. <laughs> and then he left his golf clubs in Scotland at St. Andrews, one of the greatest golf courses yeah. in the world. Yeah. Man, I hate it. I did that once. And man, I'm just... <laughs> uh, but I, Breaking I really... news. The NT Wright is bad at gardening. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I really appreciated the, you know, and even just the conversation around um, music and he mentioned uh, with his voice yeah. struggling and um, just not being able to play uh, and sing like he used to. Um, it just, I was really grateful for even just those, those small moments. It just feels like he's um, that humble person that we've grown to to know over the years. And so really grateful for, just that encouragement to pastors to keep doing things to stay healthy. Yeah. <laughs> our viewers, uh, our listeners couldn't view this, uh, but you know, interviewing him where we can see him on the video. Uh, I, it was the first time I've ever not seen him in a jacket and tie uh-huh. and he's wearing <laughs> an old polo shirt that says Umbro on it. It was like, so great. Right. It was like, he's, he's normal. He's, he's a good dude. He's a smart guy, but he's just like us that, you know, this quarantined at home wearing whatever we want. So yeah. that was kind of cool. So, well, we want to give you some resources, some questions, and then send you out. And um, so here are a couple of resources. He mentioned uh, one of the last questions uh, that was asked was, is there a passage of scripture or two that we should be reading? And he mentioned Psalm 44 and Romans 8, verses 18 to 30. And uh, so that's, and he also talks about the, those passages in the book as well. But that, that'd that be good in this season to just uh, soak in the waters of Psalm 44 and Romans 8, 18 to 30. Of course, his book, God and the Pandemic, and um, you can, there's a lot of resources on a website, godandthepandemic.com, godandthepandemic.com, including a 15-page free downloadable study guide that you can get there. Now, interestingly, this is pretty cool. Um, N.T. Wright's publicist told us that we are one of the first interviews with N.T. Wright to talk about his book, God and the Pandemic. So the ebook and the audiobook came out last week. Um, but the paperback version of the book it won't come out until July 7th. So if you can't wait and you want to jump on this right away, the audio book and the ebook is already available, but it, you can pre-order the book, which will be out July 7th. So those are the resources that we want to pass on to you. But if nothing else, go on to godandthepandemic.com and you'll see a bunch of resources there. Yeah. And the questions that we want to leave you with today, um, two two questions. The first one is this, what personal, national or global lament needs to be voiced. And then the second one is what might the spirit be stirring in you? And I think both of these questions really help us to think through that tension of um, lament and how lament starts with making our, our, our complaints known to God, but yet remembering who he is and who his character is. So yeah. JR, why don't you send us out? Yeah. Well, To the listeners of the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast, go. And as you go, may you embrace this season as a season of lament where we can grieve honestly and with hope of this God who is in control and is not surprised by anything that's going on. And may we be the kinds of people that ask less, why is this going on and where is God? And instead would ask more, what can we do to be the kinds of people who faithfully serve in light of all that is happening? So may the Lord bless you as you go, and may you remember that he's not shocked by any of this, and he's looking for his people, like you and me, to be able to join with him to be redemptive agents of hope 
in a world that's desperately in need of healing. God bless and bless God.